Mark's Gospel, chapter 9, verses 17 through 29. I want to speak this morning on the theme, Prayer's Greatest Purpose. Prayer's Greatest Purpose. Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, and we'll begin reading with verse 17. And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit. And wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him, and he foameth and gnasheth with his teeth, and pineth away. And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. He answereth him and saith, O faithless generation, How long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. And they brought him unto him, and when he saw him, straightway the Spirit tear him. And when he saw him, straightway the Spirit tear him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed foaming. And he asked his father, How long is it ago since this came unto him? And he said, Of a child. And oft times it hath cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said unto him, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him, and enter no more into him. And the spirit cried and rent him sore, and came out of him. And he was as one dead, insomuch that many said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he was come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could not we cast him out? And he said unto them, This kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. I want to direct your attention to Matthew's Gospel chapter 17, verses 20 and 21. And I do so because Matthew adds a little bit more detail to the answer that Jesus gave to the question of the disciples why they could not cast out the demon. Matthew 17, verses 20 and 21. And Jesus said unto them, Because of your unbelief, for verily I say unto you, If ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. Howbeit, this kind goeth not out, but by prayer and fasting. Most Christians either do not pray, or they pray very little. However, That is not the greatest problem in our churches. The greatest problem is that we do not love God 
with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and our strength. Our prayer problem is chiefly a love problem. There are two reasons for prayer, only two given to us in the Scriptures. The first is a deep and overflowing love for God. That is the primary reason for prayer. You love Him, and you love to be with Him. The second is our desperate need for God. We brought petitions this morning. Why? Because we need His help. These two things should cling to us as does our names. These are the reasons the Scriptures give us for prayer. We should love God so much that we want to commune with Him. And we should so feel our need for God to such a degree that we would not depart from Him. Hence, the biblical reasons for prayer. As the disciples who could not cast out the demons out of the child, we have no one to blame for our powerlessness, our lack of power than ourselves. Our prayerlessness is the blame, as it was for the disciples. We cannot blame the influence of hell, for our Lord has defeated all principalities and has given us authority to tread upon the serpent and the scorpions. And we surely cannot blame the Lord for our spiritual poverty, since He has promised to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think according to the power which worketh in us. Why, Peter says He's given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. He's done His part. We, my friends, we are the problem. It is weak hearts that leads to weak knees. Prayerlessness is a symptom symptom of something much larger today. It's a symptom of a relationship void of intimacy. We suffer from a formal faith. We have bound ourselves to a loveless morality. We give homage without heart. What do I mean by that? I mean this. We have basically defined Christianity to an ethic, to a moral conduct as long as we don't do some of the things that the worldly people do, and we do things that they would not want to do, go to church, read our Bibles, and pray, well, that's the Christian life. My dear friends, it is sadly missing the biblical definition of Christianity. That's not it. So we've reduced Christianity to more, a more mere formality. We go through the motions, and we think that this is the Christian life, and we know no better. And yet, Isn't it not true that there's something, a constant gnawing on the inside, that there's got to be more to it than this? And there is. What is Christianity? Well, it's to be at its core a flaming romance with the God who loves us. But we've turned it into a distant acquaintance with someone we barely like. I read an author just this week who said, we don't love God We like God. Well, if that be anywhere close to the truth, I should add to it, we scarcely like Him. This is the way most of us live. Brethren, if we are to be men of God, we must be men of prayer. 
if Redeemer Church is to be full of the power of God, Redeemer Church must be a praying church. There's no shortcut, no other way. We must pray. If we're to be spiritual men, we must be men who know how to pray in the Spirit and by the Spirit. If we're to preach with power, we must first be endued with power. And that power comes from heaven through prayer. You shouldn't be surprised. But the Holy Spirit filled the early church after ten days of prayer. The great China inland missionary Hudson Taylor said this, But since the days before Pentecost, has the whole church ever put aside every other work and waited upon God for ten days that the power might be manifested? We've given too much attention to methods, machinery, and resources, and too little to the source of the power. Ian Bounds, in his most commendable books on prayer, said this, What the church needs today is not more machinery or better, not new organizations or more novel methods, but men whom the Holy Ghost can use. Men of prayer, men mighty in prayer. The Holy Ghost does not flow through methods, but through men. He does not come on machinery, but on men. He does not anoint plans, but men, men of prayer. Jesus told His disciples that their failure to cast the demon out was because of a lack of two things. Faith, and prayer. Howbeit this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting and because of unbelief. But, and I want to ask you, I beg you to pay close attention to what I'm about to say. If we do not properly interpret what Jesus meant, we will go down another wrong path concerning prayer. Here's the question I want us to analyze in this hour together. It's a most important question, and it will unpack for us what the meaning here is in this statement, because Jesus does not explain Himself. He does not unpack the answer. But within His answer is the very heartbeat and purpose of prayer. Was Jesus simply saying that more prayer and fasting brings success in ministry in life? Is that what Jesus is teaching? Well, I've heard ministers sound forth on this text saying that that's exactly what Jesus meant. That if we would have more power with God, we must spend more time in prayer with Him. And no doubt, Jesus did say that, did He not? There's no doubt of that. But did our Lord mean for us to simply increase our time in the prayer closet with the hope and promise that all of our problems will be cast out. You know, there are many people who want to do this kind of thing. They've made prayer simply a matter of fulfilling some kind of requirement. Is this what Jesus meant for us to take away? This is the way the text is often presented, but I believe it's entirely wrong. It's wrong-headed, and even worse, it's wrong-hearted. It misses the heart of God completely. 
So let me make my first major statement to you. And it is this. More prayer does not equal more power. Let me say it again. More prayer does not equal more power. I say this for two reasons. Number one, prayer is not formalistic. It's not a formula. Prayer cannot be reduced to a mere formula. You begin this way, you continue this way, you conclude this way. Nor is there more power in prayer because you spend more time in prayer. In fact, I know that this is not what Jesus meant because Jesus said such an approach to prayer was absolutely wicked and abominable to Him. We know this because He said in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 7 that this is the way the Gentiles and pagans approach prayer. This was their approach. Listen to what He says in Matthew 6, 7. But when ye pray, Use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. This is the approach of the pagan, the heathen, to whomever they pray, their idol gods, or even to those who think they're praying to the Lord God. They believe that by their much speaking, their long prayers, they're going to be heard by God. But the Lord said, no, no, that's not the purpose of prayer. You've missed its heart and its heartbeat. It's not it. And yet, this is the way we often think, isn't it? Oh, I need to spend more time in prayer. Then I would have more of God's presence in my life, more of His power, more answered prayers. Friends, you cannot say that if you could be so dedicated to pray three hours a day that you'll start seeing your prayers answered. It doesn't work that way because prayer is not formalistic. Secondly, I say this, that more prayer does not equal more power because prayer is not manipulative. It's not manipulative. Such an attitude that says, okay, I need, instead of praying 30 minutes a day, I need to start praying an hour a day. Then I'll have more power on my life, more success in ministry and family and in church and in the job. Such an attitude is thinking that there's some reluctance in God. And that prayer is the means by which you overcome your, God's reluctance. It suggests that God is some stingy miser and the longer you pray, the more you unloosen His grip on the thing you seek. My dear friend, that is not right. And it's even blasphemous. Because such a thinking concerning prayer is to believe that God is neither good nor gracious. It suggests that God is not free with His blessings or His gifts. It's no wonder that many, many young people of Christians are not Christians themselves, not believers. Because what they see from their mother and their father is this idea that they have to do these things in order to gain the blessings and favor of God. There's no joy. There's no delight. There's no affections for God 
God is not the great pursuit of their lives. And when it comes to prayer, well, prayer becomes the last resort. You know what I mean? We do everything we can do. And if that doesn't work, then we pray. I wonder our children are yet to be believers. They don't see any affection or love for God in us. They know that God is only a a have-to last resort. There's no joy. There's no fervor. My dear friend, why do we go to God last? Why don't we go to Him first? Because we really don't believe He's as good and as gracious as He says He is. Because if we did, He'd be the first we go to. Prayer would not be the last resort. It'd be the first thing. Prayer is not manipulative. God is not some stingy deity sitting on a throne in heaven saying, okay, you want this blessing? Then give me three hours on your knees. And yet we've turned God into this. No wonder the people outside of the church don't want our God. When we present this as the view and perception of Him, oh no, my dear friends, God is good. And He delights in being good to you. Why do I not receive more of His goodness? Well, the same answer. Because of your unbelief and your lack of acquaintance with Him. This is the problem. Prayer that's formalistic and manipulative, even worse than this, sees the answers to prayer as the prize of prayer. In other words, what I mean by that is this. We pray not because God is our supreme and ultimate reward, but because the thing we desire is. Here lies our guilt and blame. We desire the answers to prayer more than we desire the God to whom we pray. Oh, dear Christian, there's a simple explanation to your lackluster and the coldness of your heart this morning. You desire many things, but God is not the ultimate. He's not the chief passion of your life. Therefore, whatever Jesus means by this statement, this kind cometh forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting, it cannot mean, it cannot mean simply more praying for the sake of prayer. It does not mean that. So what does our Lord mean? I suggest to you this. Prayer is first and foremost about relationship. Some of you are a little disappointed. I can see it in your eyes. When you talk about the subject of prayer or the will of God, always somebody's looking for the magic key, the secret ingredient. And when you tell them, well, it's simply this, disappointment sets in them. I can often register it. I see it. You're looking for something you had not heard that you thought was missing, buried underneath some archaic, historical book. And and, and somebody with keen discernment found it, and now here I am giving it to you. No, no, no. The, The issue really is simple. Prayer is first and foremost about relations. I say to you that that's the essence of what Christianity is, is relationship. Prayer is undoubtedly the means by which we receive answers. I wouldn't want to 
make you think less of prayer as a means of petitioning. It is the instrument by which we receive what we need. Therefore, supplicating, petitioning is one of the purposes of prayer. I said earlier, because of our desperate need for God. And that also includes what He can do for us in the hour of need. And there are many things about prayer I could teach you. We could take several Sundays in a row and give you biblical principles of prayer. Prayer conferences are filled with such teaching. Books have been written about such principles. But it seems to me that we have failed at the most essential element and purpose of prayer. And not until we get this matter right and corrected will any biblical teaching on methodology have any impact. Once again, you cannot turn prayer into a method. It's the practicing, the practicing, the practicing of your personal relationship with the living God. And that's what Jesus is implicitly saying to us here. Prayer is about having communion and intimacy with the person you love the most. At least, you should love the most. This is what I suggest to you, is what our Lord is teaching us here about prayer. Now, I know you don't see that yet, but bear with me. Again, Jesus does not unpack this for us. We have to do a little digging here. The greatest purpose of prayer is fellowship with the God we love. And even when your heart is in full blaze for God, in affection and in love, that doesn't make prayer always easy. Prayer is often difficult for many reasons. There are things and persons who oppose our praying, devils, obstacles, schedules, our own flesh. Mere duty and discipline will never oversee these op- overcome these obstacles. But the power of love can and does. Let me give you a, a crude illustration here in just a moment. The practicing of relationship must be at the heart of prayer. Otherwise, our prayers become ritualistic. A.W. Tozer in his devotional classic, The Pursuit of God, I hope you've read that, and if you haven't, Please do so quickly. Tozer said this, Come near to the holy men and women of the past, and you will soon feel the heat of their desire after God. They mourned for Him. Have you been mourning for Him? They prayed and wrestled and sought for Him day and night. Have you? in season and out. And when they had found Him, the finding was all the sweeter for the long seeking. And then he ends with this sentence. Complacency is a deadly foe of all spiritual growth. Complacency, an attitude of this is not that important, is the deadly foe of all spiritual growth. My dear friend, if you are a Christian here this morning, there ought to be something within you that's panting, that's hungering, that's thirsting for God. And if there's no hunger, if there's no thirst, if there's simply a complacency about God, I've taken care of my eternal destiny. When I die, I'll go to heaven. And that's it. 
Well then, my dear friend, you are yet to be saved. You have yet to see God. You have yet to behold His glory and His beauty and to be overcome and the heart swept full of affection. Because that's what happens when a man or a woman sees Jesus for the first time. Listen to how David prayed and cried after God. As the heart, the deer, panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after Thee, O God. My soul thirsteth, thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? He longed for Him. His heart thirst for Him. On another occasion, in Psalm 63, verses 1-3, through 3, He prayed this, O God, Thou art my God. Early will I seek Thee. My soul thirsteth for Thee. My flesh longeth for Thee. In a dry and thirsty land where no water is, to see Thy power and Thy glory so as I have seen thee in the sanctuary. Why? Why is this man, the poet of Israel, why is he so passionately concerned about the presence of God and experiencing the presence of God? Here's why. Verse 3, Because thy loving kindness is better than life. There it is. There's the answer. You've discovered a fountain of pleasure. And it's God Himself. And the pleasure of God far exceeds anything you've ever tasted or experienced or will ever taste or experience. He said, My soul longs. Even my flesh longeth for thee in a dry land where there is no water. Did you hear that? Stop. Consider this for a moment. My flesh? Do you know what He means? The desire was so intent for God and so strong that it registered within his own material, physical body. Have you never had that experience where you wanted something, anything, badly, strongly enough that you could actually feel the desire as a sensation in the body? You longed for it that much. This is what the Christian's heart is described as. One who can even feel his desire. Oh, my friend, I wish not to condemn anyone, only to awaken, to to stir you up. When did you feel your desires for God, not just in your heart, but they manifested themselves even in the flesh? We see our Lord early before anyone was awake, praying late at night and into the morning could also find Him in prayer. And our Master, as He went about doing the Father's will, went on praying. Now I ask you a question. Jesus desired His Father's presence. Do you think He desired it any less than David? No, just the opposite. He desired it even more than David could. He is not praying just to know the will of the Father when He prays. Nor is He just praying that He might have power to do the Father's will. No, no. He's praying above all these things that He might be in communion. Communion with His Father. There is the greatest purpose of prayer. Now, my crude illustration. 
what I'm trying to describe to you. Going into my senior year of college, I was carrying an honors degree grade point of GPA. I was very disciplined because I was not only going to full-time school, taking a lot of hours per semester, but I was also working because I had to work my way through college. So I had to be very judicious with my time. I had to be disciplined. But the beginning of my senior semester, I met a young lady who would end up being my future wife. And something happened. My GPA went down a half a percentage point so that I could not graduate with honors. As important as graduating with honors was to me, I made time for the thing that I wanted to do even more than graduate with honors. I wanted to be with this young woman who's been the best thing for me, second only to my salvation. Love. See, love is a better motivation than even determined discipline. Love will always take you further than sheer discipline can take you. And love for Christ must be the chief motive for prayer. Why do we pray so little? Because we love little. That is the stark, hard, cold fact. There is no other explanation. We pray little because we love little. There are times when your heart does not feel much towards God, that yes, discipline is necessary. You must not absent the closet of prayer because your heart doesn't, quote, feel like praying today. No, no, we must, we must grab ourselves by the nap of the neck and say, we will pray, we will seek the Lord. Why? Because He's the only answer to this cold and dull heart of mine. But dear friends, those times should be few and far between. Most of the time, there should be an eagerness. Oh, I can't wait to go to bed at night so I can get up the next morning and be alone with my God. When's the last time you thought that feeling? Oh, my friend, this is the chief purpose of prayer, to be alone with your God and to commune with Him and to know Him. To know Him because you love Him. Jesus taught us that this is the greatest reason for prayer in that most magnificent sermon of his, the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, he unpacks this a little bit more for us. Matthew 6, beginning with verse 5. And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and in the corner of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret. And thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Here's my question. Where is the secret place? Where is it? It's the place that is away from the public eye. That's the secret place. Don't pray as the hypocrites do on the public corners so they can be observed by men and praised because of their lengthy, beautiful prayers. But we must be very careful here. Otherwise, you'll, 
you'll undermine public prayer. And certainly there is a place for public prayer in the church. It was prominent in the church life of the New Testament, and it should be in this church. There is a place for public praying. So Jesus is not teaching against public prayer. He's teaching against public prayer that's for the approval and praise of men. That's what He's teaching against here. And teaching for a kind of prayer that is only concerned about what God thinks. Because when men pray in public, as the Pharisees did, they were praying because they considered what man thinks very important, what man thinks of themselves, of them. So the praying in the secret place is praying to God who dwells in secret because all that matters to you is what God thinks. And what God thinks matters, not because... You're afraid of Him if you don't pray, but because you love Him, you therefore do pray. That's what He meant in this text. So, back to my question. Where is this secret place? Where is this secret place? Is it a physical closet, as Jesus said, or a room, or even a physical place anywhere? And the answer is no, not at all. It is simply... Being alone with God. That's it. The secret place is being alone in the presence of God. Why? I've been in the secret place here this morning. Have you not? You can be in the secret place in a crowd of people. As you experience the presence of God. You and He. Psalm 91, He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Dear friend, if you and I are to walk out of this building this afternoon and the sun casts shadows and your shadow falls upon me, it can only mean one thing, one thing only. I must be in close proximity to you. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. There's the secret place. It's wherever God is. And you're there with Him. There is communion. There's fellowship. That's the secret place. How much of the day does the shadow of your God cover you? We can say allegorically, all His wings covers us. The pinions, the feathers cover us. Yes, In one sense of the word, that's true. He promised never to leave us nor forsake us. But that's not what this psalmist is talking about. Nor is it what Jesus is trying to say to His disciples as to their powerlessness. No, He's talking about the experience of the abiding presence of God. And there's something completely different between the theological knowing that God is with you and the experiencing by faith that God is with you. Do you experience the presence of God? I wish I could get everyone to understand what I mean by that without thinking that I'm some crazy charismatic. We've let charismatics rob us of our true biblical heritage and we ought to put our foot down and say no more. God is a God to be experienced. Not every experience is God. But God is a God to be experienced. That's the secret. That's it. That's it. 
Now, as we continue to try to understand our Lord's answer, we must understand that because prayer is practicing relationship with God, your foremost reason for prayer is because of love for Him. And because you love Him, you want to be with Him. We can now see why Jesus in Matthew 17 introduced the subject of trust. Can we not? It's simple now. You don't need me to build the bridge for you. You can see it. You can connect the dots. Prayer is also about trust. Because of your unbelief, for verily I say unto you, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place. It shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible to you. Howbeit this kind goeth not up but by prayer and fasting. Why is faith so important to God? Here's why. Because biblical faith, godly faith, always requires love. It requires love. These illustrations about you, faith is sitting in that chair not even thinking about it because you trust, falls inadequately short from the Bible's terminology and definition of faith. For example, Galatians 5.6. Galatians 5.6. For in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision. In other words, listen. There's nothing you can do or not do that will save you, that will bring you in right relationship to God. If you think by following the Christian ethic or morality, acting like a good person, if that's what Christianity is and that will guarantee you eternal life, the New Testament says to you, you are wrong, deadly wrong. None of those things are going to work. Because if they could work, then why would Jesus have to die on the cross? The death of, of Christ on Calvary, Calvary's cross is a statement to all humanity, it's impossible for you. Salvation is utterly impossible to any and all of us. But through my Son, the gate is open. The door is open. Access to me has been made. And then Paul says this, but faith, here's what does work, Faith which worketh by love. Why does he add the words by love? Because Paul understands how faith works. Faith is not this cold, mechanical recognition and acknowledgement of facts. Saying you believe in Jesus, believing the Bible is the word of God, cannot keep you from going to hell. But faith, true faith in God can because true faith loves the object in which it trusts. It treasures that which it trusts. And here's why God made salvation and its agency built upon faith. It's the same reason you trust and love your spouse or a dear friend. You trust them because you love them. And the Lord wants to be loved just as a friend would be loved. Or a significant other, your spouse, would be loved. Because this is relationship. We could say there are other reasons that why faith is necessary. Faith, but, but ultimately, faith is not a work. 
When God says, by faith the just shall live, He doesn't mean that faith is somehow meeting the qualifications and now you've checked off and now you've done something and God says that's good. Faith is not a work because faith doesn't work that way. Faith in someone is not created in you. The person whom you trust created that faith in your heart towards them. My confidence in my wife, I did not sit and muster and develop and, and create. I didn't sit one day and say, okay, I'm going to trust Karen. I'm going to trust Karen. I'm going to trust Karen. I've got to trust her. Oh, I've got to trust. Come on. <clears throat> Let's get this trust up. Let's get it up. Let's get it up. And yet that's how we deal with God, isn't it? We look at our faith and say, oh, it's so pitiful. It's so small. I've got to increase my faith because if I can increase my faith, and then God will be pleased. And when He's pleased, then He'll answer my prayers. Then He'll bless my life. And our focus is on our faith. And that is entirely wrong. That's what these heretical word of faith teachers are trying to get people to do. It's not what Jesus is trying to get us to do. The focus and the object is never your faith. It's on Christ who is trustworthy. And when you see how trustworthy He really is, how good and gracious He really is, faith is natural. Faith is automatic. You can't help but believe in Him. It's the same when you come to a friend. You don't know this person, but you get acquainted with this person. And over time, you find out this person's trustworthy. Do you have to then work at trusting them? No. Trust in them is automatic. It's natural. Because they did the work of behaving in such a manner that proved themselves trustworthy that your faith was just naturally there. The same is true with God. That's why faith is integral to our life of prayer. That's why God requires it. Because faith, like nothing else, glorifies Him and says to you and to the world watching you, God is most trustworthy. He's not only trustworthy for my sins. He's not only trustworthy to keep me and to give me paradise, eternal life with Him forever, but oh no, He's much more than that. He's trustworthy with me, my daily life, my sorrows, my pains, my tribulations, my successes, my joys. He's worthy to hold all of it in His hand and to keep it and me as well. That's why God requires faith. Because faith is never cold nor mechanical. It trusts God because it sees Him for who He is and it loves Him. Faith working through love. Your sinner friend, that's your need the hour. Your, your need is not to come forward and talk to me and pray with me or one of the other elders or somebody whom you respect to your mother or your father. It's not asking Jesus into your heart. No, you need something that you cannot do. Here's what you need. You need Almighty God to show up in your life and to make Himself real to you as real as me standing here. Not to the eyes, not audible to the ears, but friends, a reality that supersedes even the physical. And that's what God does when He saves a person. He makes Himself real to that person. 
and they see Him for who He is, and they immediately love Him and trust Him. Now, to see God that way requires time with God. Jesus knew His Father And therefore, he could trust his Father. He spent time in prayer because prayer strengthened him. But what is it about prayer that should strengthen you and I? Here it is. Being with God, seeing Him, hearing Him, through His Word, through your prayers to Him. It's it's the way we behold Him. It's the very practicing of our love relationship with Him. So here's what Jesus means. This kind goeth out not by by prayer and fasting. Is this. Jesus is explaining that those who love God the most eagerly spend time alone with Him. Did you hear my words? Eagerly spend time alone with Him. I didn't have to put on my calendar when I was dating my wife. Friday evening, blocked off just for Cameron. No, no, no. Nor did I have to grab myself by the nap of the neck and go out on a date with her. I was willing and was ready even to the neglect of my studies. Not recommending that to any of the young people. Sorry, mom and dad. But you get my point. I was attracted to her. I loved her. I was eager to spend time alone with her. And friends, your relationship with God is no different. Why do we think it is? We have so... We so mystify this relationship with Him that we forget to see He too is a person. Just like you're a person. He's divine. That's a big difference, right? Remember, He's revealed Himself in the God-man, Christ Jesus. And He's a person. And His personality is to be cultivated just like you'd cultivate any personality of somebody whom you was attracted to. The question is, are you attracted to Him? And those, here's what Jesus is saying. The reason you couldn't cast out those devils is because... You have a love problem. That's why you have a prayer problem. Those who spend much time with God because they love God for His own sake are clothed in His fragrance. In His fragrance. And it's the fragrance of God on your life that is the power of God in you. Again, another crude illustration with my wife. She hugged me on my way departure this morning to come here. Dressed to go to Providence Chapel. Me dressed to come here. She hugged me and gave me a kiss. And as I get down the road, I could smell something. Oh, that's Karen. Whew, that smells good. The fragrance of my wife was on me. Why? So simple. This is so simple. 
You're going to laugh at me. It's being so simple. Because I was in her presence close. Jesus is saying power over hell. Power over the difficulties and perplexities and tribulations of life can be overcome through much prayer and fasting. Not because more prayer and fasting gives you more power, but more time alone with the God in fellowship that you love gives you power. Because His fragrance abides upon you. And so I ask you, how much of the fragrance of God abides on you this morning? And secondly, those who spend much time with God will always see Him for who He is and therefore they will what? Trust Him more. The issue is you're not trying to ratchet up your faith and feel more assured. The issue is seeing Jesus more clearly. Spending time in the Word, on your knees, in prayer, in fellowship with God. Oh, I wish I had seven hours with you to unpack just what that means. How to do that biblically, by faith, to experience the presence of God. My dear friend, I'm asking the Lord even right now, before we partake of the Lord's Supper, that He will do for you what you absolutely need. Not to beg before God and say, Oh God, I'm sorry that I don't love you like I should. I'm going to try better tomorrow. No, no, no. The answer is seeing Him for who He is. May God open the eyes of our hearts to see Him here this morning. Oh, may our spirits be sensitive to His great Holy Spirit who is here this morning. Would He remove the scales from our eyes to see clearly most of us in this room who are Christians, we're like that man whom Jesus touched once who was blind and He saw men walking as trees. We need a second touch. Yes, He touched us once. We're saved as a result of that. But I've lost my vision of Jesus. He's grown dim in my sight. And every idolatrous desire has captured my heart's affection. Oh, what's the answer? Here it is. God would visit you this morning and touch you yet again. That's the answer. Don't you want that? How can you be a Christian and not cry for that this morning? You who sit here today with a lackluster love, your wick is just smoldering. No wonder thy, your children don't follow you in the ways of your God. There's no light. But let the light of Jesus Christ burn in you. There'll be light in the home. Now, I'm not trying to put you under some guilt complex. I'm just trying to be honest. Sometimes we tiptoe around these issues and we never get to the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter in most cases is the problem is starts with mother and dead and their lackluster affection for God. Their passion is for other things. And the children simply deduce God must not be that important. God help us. God help us. May the Lord this morning pour out His love in your heart by the Holy Spirit who is given to us that we would want to be alone with Him more and more. And that our faith would naturally rise as we see Him as He is. Amen. And amen. Let us pray. Oh, Father, 
we bring nothing. No manipulative spirit. No bargaining. Not trying to find the most eloquent phrase in order to sway and move your heart towards us. That's foolishness. In fact, it's abominable. It's stench in your nostrils. We just simply ask, show up here and reveal yourself to us more clearly than ever before. I want to go to the next level in our relationship, Lord. I long for this. I seek you for it. Help us. Help us, Lord. For those who have left first love, help them to repent. Remember from whence they've fallen. Do their first works. And every one of those first works was motivated by love, not duty or discipline. Give them that love again. And for those who are not Christians, oh God, we understand one thing clearly. Unless you open the eyes of the blind, they never will see you. And they will die lost in their sins. Lord, whoever is here in that condition, I pray and ask in Jesus' name, whose blood is the only means of their saving, that you'd open their eyes right now. Please, Lord, may there be an encounter with you and them that changes them permanently and turns them from criminals into children. Please, Lord, I ask this of you for the sake of Jesus who died for us. To honor Him, to lift Him up. He's worthy of this great reward from which He has suffered much. Do this, I pray, Lord Jesus. Continue to bless this church. Continue to move, Lord, in revival power. Let this church burn, Lord. Burn. So that people will come and watch them burn. And be affected by their love and zeal for You. It's in Jesus' name I pray.